0: This is Anthony Arena and you're listening to In the Arena. Stay. There is no opening sponsor for this episode of In the Arena. Instead, I want to send you to one of my sites to give you a free resource. The Model Sales Week is a nine-part video series that you can get for free by going to themodelsalesweek.com. And there you're going to find a link. You can give us your email address, and your first name, and we will send you immediately to those nine videos where you can watch some of my best ideas about how to be truly productive as a salesperson. So go to themodelsalesweek.com and sign up and get the nine-part video series immediately. There's no drip. It's not going to come email after email. You go immediately. You get all the content. I hope you enjoy it. Send me a note. Go to the salesblog.com, Go to the contact page. Send me a note. Let me know how you're doing with that content, and I hope you enjoy it. I love this interview because I'm an enormous fan of Roz Zander. Roz is a family therapist and a leadership coach. She's a pioneer in both of those fields. And if you know Roz's work, it's because you've read or listened to The Art of Possibility, a book she wrote with Ben Zander, then conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. I invited Roz here because her new book, Pathways to Possibility, is perhaps one of the three or four most important self-help books I've ever read, even though Roz would never call it a self-help book. Like The Art of Possibility, this book is also what I would call an other help book. Upon reading this book, you're going to look at people differently You're going to be more empathetic because you're going to have an improved ability to see the stories that they tell themselves. And you'll also recognize the disempowering stories that you tell yourself. This is my new friend and someone I call teacher, Roz Zander, in the arena. Good morning, Roz. How are you?
1: Good morning, Anthony. I am excellent, thank you.
0: I say I am either perfect or wonderful. And when I say that, people look at me and they're like, oh, you're perfect. And I'm like, yeah, I'm perfect. And then they have to deal with that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so am I. So they'll have to deal with the both of us.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a lot to deal with. I don't think the authors write books unless they have something burning inside them that they have to get out because the process is grueling. And I think when people think about it, it looks glamorous because the end result looks glamorous, but the putting it together looks ugly. What was burning inside you? Why did you have to write Pathways to Possibility Now?
1: Well, the first book, The Art of Possibility, was published 16 years ago, and I thought that covered the waterfront. I didn't think I had anything more to say on the subject of transformation, but seven years later, I went through some traumas, I went through some experiences, and I thought, oh no, there's much more to say. And that's when I began hatching it about seven or eight years ago, thinking about Pathways. And what I saw was that in order for us to be able to deal with the world as it is and make a difference and really connect, it would be better for us to do work on ourselves. And Art of Possibility didn't have that in there. You did work on yourself if you read it, if you were interested. But this book is really takes us in deep. And I really wanted to talk to people about changing patterns that they develop in early childhood or at any time along the way and to move out of what I call the child mind, which is rampant everywhere in the world now. You might ask me what the child mind is. So we'll, stop we'll, we'll going get, up. No, no,
0: we'll we'll get there. <laughs> Let me go back to something that you you said that I I've studied and looked at from different angles. But I want to start with this idea that we live in this age of science and reason, and everything that we can see, we measure, and we try to develop an understanding. But we leave out the fact that most of the things that are going on are internal, and we're ruled by unseen forces that are mostly subconscious, and we have things like gravity and radiation. You can't see them, but they have a tremendous impact. But we have all these things. So we have this subjective inner world that we're discounting all the time. And so inside, we have these stories that we tell ourselves. Some of these stories are conscious, and I think many of them for us are unconscious. We don't really even know we're telling ourselves the story. But tell me about these stories And then I guess when we talk about the child stories and the adult stories, maybe the way to frame it up is to think about what are these pathologies, if that's the the right word to use, that prevent us from seeing possibility and keeping us trapped in a child story? Is that a a good setup for that?
1: Well, I don't think I'd put it that way. I would say, first, I want to establish that there's nothing we do that isn't in a story. So you look out the window and you're already in a story the way you define what you're seeing is a story. It comes from the perceptions that we get as human beings. And then it comes from all the loves and all the different things you've done in your life. And then you see a pine tree and it's a pine tree that belongs to you. So there's no way to have some stories and no stories, right? That's the first thing I want to say. Then we come in different parts. So some things can happen to us in childhood that kind of make us stop. I just spent three days with my grandchildren and I saw my grandson go into tears saying that his mother never remembers anything. Now that's a little trauma for him because he thinks she owes him $35. And she says, well, I'm not sure about that. And he decides that the world is this way. You cannot trust people. Your mother will never remember anything. That's a child type story because it's a story made in a very small context and it hasn't got any, it's black and white and it's how children think. Everything they think is self-centered, is eye-centered and And it's all about they don't have much control. So he's thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't have a real conversation with my mother. I wouldn't know what that is. She's going to prevent me or she's not going to remember. So these types of stories, I wouldn't call them pathological. I just say they keep us rooted in a way of thinking, which is not apt for nowadays. It isn't apt for making marriages and good relationships and ability to deal with large communities.
0: Would you call that kind of a child story, that's this massive generalization of one specific instance, mm-hmm. the, the behavior as it grows in us as adults, would you call those pathologies? The behavior that we're reacting out of the child story, even if it's subconsciously, And I'm thinking of the book and like an Alan, what Alan's going through with the preying on women, essentially, or treating them like objects. Would you call that a pathology?
1: Well, it's so common, Anthony, that, and there's so many degrees of it. Of course, if you take it to an extreme, it becomes narcissism. But all children's child stories are narcissistic. So I don't want to get into the world of pathology.
0: Okay. So, what's the difference between a child story and an adult story?
1: A child story, as I say, starts from the child-centered point of view, the eye-centered. And because children are designed to survive, nature makes us that way. It's fear-based, and there's always a lack of power in the child story. So, there's a seeking of control. It's all personal. Everything Everything that happens relates to me, and there's an idea of It's a scarcity-minded thing. There'll never be enough. It's black and white. And as you said, things will always be this way. It's reactive. And there's a notion that you could find the truth, that there is a truth out there. Now, the difference between that and what I call an adult story is that the shift is we live in stories. There is no truth out there. We understand that perspectives are relative, and that means that you can come up with multiple points of view and the basic emotion is not fear as it is in a child story, but, but it's, a, it's an empowered way to, of being. And there's a kind of sense of wonder and curiosity and really gratefulness for being alive.
0: So the child story is coming from a place of fear. I'm thinking of things like a deep need for a sense of approval or belonging, safety from harm. I'm powerless. There's never going to be enough. And then the adult story is this transition or transformation into stories of uh, abundance thinking of of possibility, of course, coming out of uh, the first book of this kind of thing. But what my thought is, is that this book is the follow on to say, here's how to do the deep work on figuring out what your child stories are and your adult stories are. So I want to ask the question, how do you find your own child stories? And that's a tough question on its own, but I'm going to make it a two-parter. Is it easier for someone else to see that frame, that child story on you than it is for you to see it yourself and why?
1: It is easier for other people because they get annoyed with you. (laughs) 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 Because when you're acting in a child story, you're acting on your own behalf, essentially, no matter how you're moving it so it looks like it might be for another person because it's based in survival. Now, you can identify that you're in a child story if you pay attention to the fact that you may feel triggered, that you may feel more emotional than necessary. You can absolutely guarantee you're in a child story if you're not getting along with another person. Now that sounds radical. Because most people will say, of course you have differences with people, you don't get along, fights are inevitable. But I don't think they are. I think all you have to do is look to yourself and say, what story am I living in that I'm unable to get into an authentic, loving relationship with this person?
0: I see that manifest itself in business with people assuming that the normal conflict and friction that occurs in business when people have competing needs is their bad intentions. They're evil. They're stupid. They're trying to hurt us. And they start framing it in that view.
1: Oh, they absolutely do. Company after company. I have heard that happening. Of course, that's a story. Right. Do you want to continue with that story? Because what that does is to create more competition, more bad feeling. And then, of course, some one side goes down and that was inevitable because they were so bad. Most people do not understand that that's a story they're telling, and that they can tell a completely different one and have it be totally authentic. That is, you can start with, as you said, the intention, but start with the intention that the other company's intentions are good, right, and. They either don't know how to express them or they have fear that is overriding them or they don't feel in control, all those things, but their intentions are good. So if you speak to the people in the other company as people who have a positive intention that can match yours, that everybody wants to get together on something, because obviously if if one company is dealing with another, they do. It's to my mind, that's true. Right. Then you keep speaking in that way. And what I'm saying is that if you get over your own triggering competitive stories, you will become a transformational environment for the people around you, for the other company.
0: And my choice on stories like that has been to think about, they have pain that I don't understand. They're under stress that I don't understand. They haven't found the resourcefulness on their end to figure out this problem so that what I'm seeing is a manifestation, really, of their fears, of their powerlessness, of all of those things. I agree. And that, I think, can help break through that. Are the (laughs) stories that we carry, our childhood stories, are they why we reflexively take things personal, and I want to give you an example from my world. I work a lot with salespeople, and they say, like, how do you deal with rejection? Like, they've been personally rejected when really the client's just busy. They're not interested in transformation or change right now because they've got too many things on their plate. And it means nothing personal, but we feel that personal. Is that something that we're carrying with us?
1: Yes. When people are in a survival mode, that is, they're, they're afraid that they'll be criticized, that they'll, they'll lose something, they take the world personally. But everybody is that way. We're born into that. We're born into the notion that the major thing we're doing in life is surviving. You know, if you read an evaluation and 99.7% of it is absolutely positive. And there's one word there that is negative to you where does your eye go?
0: Where does your mind go? Yeah, where- <laughs> it, it goes to focus on the one negative, right?
1: Yes, and we're built that way. So if we can enlarge the frame on ourselves and understand how we're built, we'll think that's fairly funny, and you just did, but not when we get that evaluations and we see that it's, word.
0: It's funny here while we're talking about it. When it happens, <laughs> it, it's not funny.
1: <laughs> that's right, unless people have a notion that they're carrying child stories. And of course, I want to get this notion out into the world. Then the best thing we can do when somebody is feeling hurt like that, when they're withdrawing and they're losing their resources because somebody criticized, said something that they felt was critical. The best thing we can do is to hold a sense of being that is warm, slightly amused, incredibly loving, because what they're feeling is that they're being cut off. And being cut off is the most dangerous thing that can happen to an animal in the wild, to a human child, and to us who have such long childhoods that we keep that same notion that being cut off is going to be the end of the world, whereas we know it isn't.
0: (laughs) I don't believe people recognize that they have this lens on the world that is fear and scarcity. Yeah. I I don't think that they recognize that they have it. And I don't know if you saw the movie, The Matrix. Did you ever see that?
1: I did. Again, a long time ago.
0: And In The Matrix, the main character, as soon as he decides he wants to be something or do something, you can sort of implant a program and then he has whatever those abilities are. But it reminds me of that because I think that we are creating the world, and I'm going to use the word love, but I think that. The adult story is the love and abundance, but scarcity thinking is so natural and abundance thinking to me seems so difficult for many people who don't recognize that the universe is essentially abundance and there are enough resources for many, many more people than we, we take care of right now. Why do we get stuck in the fear and scarcity and what's that shift to abundance?
1: Well, again, we get stuck because the human race has not evolved out of it. Your friends are stuck there. Our communities, our country is stuck there. Have you noticed? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use a funny word for this, but we haven't shared a technology for moving out of it. And the only technology I know of is to be able to say we're living in stories, not in reality. Once you get that, the world of abundance is at hand. It's not only that there's this gorgeous world around us that has everything we need, But we have everything we need to be able to change the story, to be able to move into greater and greater spaces that we haven't even imagined yet. So the abundance is as much inside us as it is out in the world. And you can't argue with that because you can argue that there aren't enough resources in a particular closed space. But you can't argue that there aren't the resources of imagination that we've been given to create a different world wherever we go. And when you change your story, you're actually walking in a different world. You see things differently. I,
0: I think that the linchpin human attribute is resourcefulness. It's imagination, creativity. I mean, and that's the gift, right?
1: That is the gift. That's the gift. What did I say? The... That our great human gift, comparable to the ants' communication and rebuilding skills, I mean, there are so many comparisons into the wild world. Our great human gift is the ability to tell one another stories of healing and renewal. That's all we need to do. And it is a huge gift. Now, imagination gets shut down when you're frightened. If we decide, if you and I decide, and people with us decide to be instruments of transformation, what we do is be the people who reduce the fear around us. And that is just done by not being triggered ourselves in any situation and putting out the energy of love to surround people and make them feel safe.
0: What's the process for upgrading these stories? And I've read a a really big part of the book. I want to talk about the concrete, actionable steps that somebody can use to grow up their stories. How do you start growing up that story and saying, I need to shift from this scarcity, this fear the things that, as you've stated, they're just, they're human. That's part of what makes us human. We were dropped off here naked and survival was the instinct that has allowed us to get to this point, but we've carried a lot of it over. But now we can move forward and transform. What can you direct people? If we're being directive, how do you do that work?
1: Well, I do it in a number of ways, but One of the ways is that I talk to people. If I'm doing the work, are you asking how I get people to do that or how people can do it themselves? Well,
0: I have to know how you do it now because you've (laughs) offered me that opportunity and I want to understand the work that you do. But how do they do it themselves and then how do you do it? I want to know both of those. Okay.
1: (laughs) If you're trying to do it yourself, first you have to identify what it is that is the child's story. And all you need to look for is how you feel. If you feel what I'm saying triggered, a sudden emotional something. What I ask people to do, and I'm saying you can do, is classify that feeling as a memory of something that happened long ago. Not something that's, I mean, there's something that's triggering that memory, but it isn't really happening now. And whether it is or not, I'm asking people to think that it isn't. Classify it as a memory of something that happened long ago and keep going back until you find the age or the area of that memory. And if you can't do that, just classifying it as a memory will give you some distance from it.
0: So objectifying it.
1: Yeah. I guess that's the word to you.
0: (laughs) You make it an object. You're no longer the subject. It's an object. So we move away from it.
1: Yeah. And it is a memory, though, of something that happened to you, obviously.
0: So it's the the origin of uh, the child story.
1: It's the origin of the child story. Then you can look for something else. What else might be happening here than what I'm feeling and thinking? And that's the big clue because that moves you out of the personal. So you think, you know, let's say you're doing something in a business and somebody Mm -hmm. criticizes you and you shrink. All right. Immediately. That's a memory. Whoever criticized me, give it a guess. Oh, maybe my father criticized me for something. (laughs) Try to come up with something he criticized you for and then say, what else might have been going on in him? Or even if you just say it's a memory of someone criticizing me, then you can move to what else might be going on with this person. Now, I say that nothing need be taken personally. I remember I was in a therapy session with a couple and the man came in telling me that he just found out that his wife was having an affair, and they're both sitting there. And I turned to him and I said, you're not taking that personally, are you?
0: <laughs> I have a feeling he was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but I did it in a certain way. I mean, it shocked him a little bit, but then I moved right on. There's no reason to take this personally. You're not the center of this story, sir. <laughs> she is. And let's find out what's happening over here. Anyway, I'm saying there's no reason to take anything personally. You can always think you don't know what's happening, what could be happening. And there's always a story that takes you out of the hot seat and puts you into a better position.
0: Is the same true, though, for for positive feedback? I mean, isn't that the same thing? You're actually hearing a reflection of what they value. Yeah. And and it really has nothing to do with you that way either.
1: No, it doesn't really. But you can say it does. (laughs) See, you have the (laughs) you have the power to make whatever story works for you. I'm telling you that taking anything personally is not a good story for you. <laughs> taking well, taking the negative personally is not a good story, unless you want to use it as feedback. Now, the first when I got the written comments on the art of possibility, there was some the first pass, there were some really negative ones. And for some reason I it was a good thing for me. I I thought this was very amusing. And one of them was so bad that I actually read it to a group of people at a party. And Ben was saying, what are you doing? I said, this is funny. This is this person is really having some kind of fit over me.
0: Yeah, and that book, um, we'll have a link to that book, as well as the new book in the show notes here for people. But that's a must read. It is a must read book. This one is too. This one's way more personal for me, though. I read it more personally. Let me ask you, I I try to always find ways that people can transform faster? Can you find a way? And so I want to ask, can we borrow frames or stories from people who have shared a similar experience who just are telling a better story than we are? Can we take their story and say, I like that story better than my story? Of course. So I'm going to reframe it. And I'm thinking about, I have the circumstances of my birth. My mom raised four kids by herself. Her mom raised five kids by herself. And so the circumstances of my birth were not particularly great. Yeah. But they also made me scrappy, you know, and so the story that it got me is that I figured out really quick how to hustle and take care of myself, and I've done enough introspection to know I did a whole bunch of things, good and bad, based on that story. But there are, the story that we tell ourselves, if it's the child's story, it's a negative story, but my, I guess the question for you, the answer was yes, can we borrow it, but if there are other people getting a better result, it's because they had those same circumstances that you had, but they're telling a better story about it.
1: That's Right. Hopefully they're telling an adult story about it. I just worked with a man who's about, I don't know, late 30s or 40 in a group. And his father had committed suicide when he was 10. And his mother and his younger brother felt that his father was so selfish. And then he thought that too. And so the family carried this selfish story. And the man was thinking, could not stop asking himself, why did he leave me like that? Why did he do that to me? You see the child story in that? Yes. So in the group, in a few minutes, we expanded that frame. All I had to do was say, what went on before that evening? Well, his parents had had an argument, and it turned out that his mother had said that she would leave the father if he ever hit her again, which apparently he did, and he said to her, I will kill you if you leave me. Now, this was all in the boy's, in the man's memory, but it wasn't applied to the trauma. So what we made out of it was, you know, by by a Socratic questioning, why then he hit his mother that evening. He had said he would kill her. Why did he kill himself? And that man, in those five minutes, was quiet and then said he killed himself because he didn't want to leave us without a mother. Now, is that a fabulously grown-up story all of a sudden? And it gives him a different place. His father really loved him and killed himself in order to preserve him. And two or three days later, because I had this group come from Europe to work with me, two or three days later, before he left, he said, everything has changed for me.
0: In five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. How long was he with you? Days?
1: Two days by that point.
0: Two days, but five minutes in one story. Yeah. And a massive transformation.
1: Yeah. Because the story upgraded, that's all you need. All you need is that shift in story that you believe. It has to be plausible to you. And for him... It was obvious to him that that was really the reason his father committed suicide.
0: And we're back to this. If you apply bad intentions to what you're seeing, it's easy to get to the child story. And if you're assuming good intentions, you can get to a more empowered place to find possibilities of better stories.
1: Well, that is a very nice equation.
0: Close enough. It's uh, the book's a lot better. Your telling in the book is a lot better than mine, but that's what it's working for me. Can you rewrite the stories for a whole culture? Can you rewrite the stories for an organization, or I guess if I'm saying this another way, can you as a leader infect other people with a better story than they have been told before now?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the big examples are people like Mandela. Yeah. I met him once. I had dinner with him, and wow. he held my hand under the table for the entire <laughs> dinner. Not saying very much, mind you.
0: He said everything with that, I imagine. Oh,
1: yes. His ability to... Hold his vision. I mean, imagine 23 years in jail. I mean, he de Klerk would, was trying to get him out of jail because all of the world was bearing in on South Africa for having jailed Mandela. And de Klerk wanted him out. De Klerk was a great man, by the way. But Mandela knew that he couldn't leave until the whole thing was done, till the whole story was changed, that the story of South Africa had to be about the rainbow coalition, the democracy. So everybody had to vote in the final vote and the clerk wasn't up for that yet. So he stayed another three years in prison. It's just a way of holding a story. And finally the story was picked up by the entire society. Now, of course, There are other examples of that. I think that if a leader really gets it, I mean, I also in the book tell the story of Shackleton who says optimism is the moral courage that he held those 26 people alive over circumstances that are just not possible to keep people alive because he would not allow any negative thinking and he kept the good cheer all the way through. And so did his first mate. One of my favorite stories. It is unbelievable, really. Optimism is the true moral courage. I love that. Think about it. Think how difficult that can be for people to wake up in the morning and produce this sense of possibility, no matter how they feel. When you get to my age, you have a lot of aches and pains. and And I've had surgeries and everything. But the gentleman I'm with now says, I can't believe you're always so cheerful in the morning. It means all difference to me in my day. When you can do that for people, why would you ever do anything else? (laughs) And why wouldn't you feel much better doing it? It's something we can do. So we can hold the story. Which is a story that, whatever story that is good for everybody, and that's, of course, what Mandela was doing in bringing the society together, which Martin Luther King did, all those great people. And they didn't get all involved in the little political nitpicking of it. They just held the story.
0: The vision was too big for that. Yeah. The vision's too big for the little nitpicky stuff. It was too big to be contained in that kind of pettiness. Exactly. I'm just wondering how they ever got you to let go of Mandela's hand.
1: I guess the dinner was over and I I was eating with my left hand.
0: (laughs) I want to touch the art of possibility here, too, as we talk about this. And I just want to talk about one thing in that book, the frames that we use in the frame of I have to deal with these circumstances to I have these possibilities. And I want to sort of ask you to talk about the book for a minute, because that book is so instrumental to thinking this way. Both of these together are a great combination, but I don't think that people are taught. I mean, as I'm reading, rereading that in this book, I'm thinking, I've got one kid graduating from high school, getting ready to start college. You do not learn any of this in school. And the rest of the world and the culture that we live in infects you with nothing but circumstances and negativity and scarcity, when in fact there's nothing but possibility. I I tell them all the time, the reason I don't watch the news, they never report how many people got married. They never report how many babies were born. They never report how many people. I mean, a million positive things happen every day doesn't get one minute of coverage. So we think circumstances and we don't think possibilities. Can you speak to that for a minute?
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about Ben Zander, who is the co-author of the Art of Possibility. And he is currently in Spain with a youth orchestra. And this youth orchestra has been built by both of us as a possibility group. And these are young kids. They go from 12 to 21. You would not believe the right We give them an, an assignment every week, game to play. And they come from their unconscious and they pull it together and they integrate and they just say the most incredible things. And they're on tour and they're only taking three chaperones, I think, for 120 kids. Why? Because the group works absolutely joyously and smoothly together. They know what they're about there. And they wouldn't be doing anything off track, not the 12-year-old nor the 21-year-old. And they're helping each other. Well, they've been trained to deal with possibility, not circumstance. It's because we have a misunderstanding that the world as we see it is a fixed thing. And so you have to move stuff around. It's like tables and chairs, We think that if something that we want different in the world, that we have to start moving it or trying to persuade people of things or hammer at stuff. But the world is not fixed. It's a story. So obviously, the thing to do when you want to change something is to change the story, not the world. Once you change the story, you will be drawn into behavior that will change the world in the direction of your story.
0: And you'll be a lot happier. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It it seems to me that Pathways to Possibility, this is as much about what I would call waking up as it is growing up.
1: Yeah, I love that you got
0: that. Yeah, and I think that we age, but we don't necessarily mature. And I think that the growing up is part of waking up to who we are and what we do in a much, much bigger sense. And that's a big part of this book. That seems to me to see be the, the undergirding of this.
1: It is the undergirding. See, people often say, is this a self-help book? I said, no, it's not a self-help book. The first part of it could be called that. It's a waking up book. Yeah. It's a, an extending book. It's being able to look further and with new stories into the world that we have no idea about ordinarily. And many of the stories I tell are just for that reason, to help you see another something else. And then the game at the end, see something that you've never seen before as a game to play.
0: And the waking up part of this, too, is just, for my mind, it is, remember that we're writing this story right now. Remember that, you know, and yep. what story are we writing? And it matters. And I think that gets the meaning and purpose in a lot of what's missing. I wrote this down because I'm going to write a blog post about it in the future. But, you know, your work isn't some place to go to have your soul crushed. You're here for something much more than that. If yeah. you bring your heart to it and you look at the possibilities.
1: Yeah, <laughs> can we be partners? <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is my lightning round of questions. So these are things I just wanna know from people who are as interesting as you are and who do transformational work. One or two of the most important books you've ever read. What was influential for you in that regard?
1: Nora Trander's book, The User Illusion. So many. <laughs> In the science world, biomimicry. Who wrote that? By Janine Benyus. You cite
0: E.O. Wilson. I love
1: E.O. Wilson. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And very, very great work.
1: Yeah. Also, Maturana.
0: I don't know Maturana. Who's that?
1: He is a Chilean philosopher and he understands about transformation. I did the work, and maybe you know it too, the work of the forum. I did it. 30 years, 30 years ago, and I got to be friends with Werner Erhard. His thinking definitely has influenced me.
0: They're still doing that work.
1: And yeah, I haven't had anything to do with it, but they may be.
0: They, they are, yeah. They're yeah. still out doing that.
1: And uh, Irving Goffman, and his work is all about seeing things from different points of view also and, and looking at the exchanges in society's very, very detailed understanding, looking at the conversations and, and exchanges in society. And he gives you big insights into
0: Is that going yeah. from, say, the third person thinking, getting out of first person, second person? Yeah. Getting broader? Yeah. Okay.
1: But also he just points out so many things that we don't notice. And you suddenly see it doesn't work the way you thought it did.
0: That's my favorite kind of work is where after reading it or studying it, you have a new lens on the world
1: absolutely
0: that's the the best work to read your book is one of those two what about what's the most important lesson you've learned in life i hate these questions hate hate away but answer me anyway
1: the most important lesson i've learned in life that it's up to me
0: it's a good lesson this one's not in the lightning was ben a muse for you
1: for writing
0: yeah Mm. for the thinking, I guess, behind some of this. Well,
1: work. no, I think I'm a muse for him, for the thinking. He's a muse for my heart. That is, the music is so important to me, and I become something different when I'm in that milieu. And he was very, his music making is was very instrumental in the music of the books I write, because I care very much how the cadence goes in a sentence. And in the first book, there was always a Travel downwards and then you came up to possibility at the end of the chapter. And that was a musical thing. So, yes, greatly. I have been his thinking muse.
0: He's an interesting person to watch. I'll maybe put a a link in the show notes uh, about him. I mean, I'm thinking of a video I watched with him with like a 15-year-old kid playing a viola or something. Yeah. And, And his coaching is done with this great heart of love and laughter that comes through that I think is so touching and so deep. And when you think about leaderships and the way that we lead, you don't see a better example than what you see Ben do in that. So, I mean, I'm just thinking about the two of you together doing this work about were you amused for each other and did that allow the whole thing to be created because of what you do with transformation in a very personal level and that what he does in this big, open, visible thing that he does.
1: Yes, I think we are in an incredible partnership in transformation. He says, I have the clarity, and he has the energy. Ben Zander blasts through the mountain, and Roz lays the tracks. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good partnership, and we don't, there's nothing competitive about it. If I'm in a group, I transform the group. I don't transform the group in the, with the same kind of energy that he has. I have a form of love that does it. It's always love, Anthony. You know that. I it's do. always love. But we have built on each other's abilities. We absolutely have. And I think of him in Spain now, and they're just doing such incredible work. And if my book can have that effect of a different kind to that many people, then we're in very good shape.
0: Yeah, it is, it's an exceptional book for transformation. I'm going to ask you one more question that you hate. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you want to be remembered for?
1: I honestly don't care to be remembered, except maybe my grandchildren.
0: What do you want them to remember you for?
1: For the, thing, the way we were together, the, the games we played, the, the love. I want them to realize how wonderful they are because you are only in relationship. You're not by yourself at any point. So if they remember, and these two kids, they really do treat me awfully well. Five-year-old and now turned 10, they come and hug me at any point. You know, if I walk into a room, they come and hug me. It's so fabulous.
0: What's going to be missing from this audio recording is how your face lit up when you started talking about these two grandkids and you were overcome with love just on your face. And mm-hmm. you still are, as I'm saying this. <laughs> Ross, thanks so much for being here and sharing this. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your work.
1: Thank you so much. I now I'm so impressed with you. It's, this is a lovely relationship. <laughs>
0: one of my all-time favorite interviews here in the arena. That was Roz Zander, and you can find her at rosamondzander.com. We'll put that in the show notes so you can easily find Roz and her work. You can buy her new book, Pathways to Possibility, now on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, iBooks, Pals, and just about any place that books are sold. And I would also recommend you pick up The Art of Possibility. It's an excellent companion. It's broader, and this one is way more personal. Both of them together are a terrific combination. I'm Anthony Annarino, and I'm the host here at In the Arena. And you can find me every day at thesalesblog.com, where I do publish daily. When you get there, do sign up for the Sunday newsletter. It's my best and most helpful content straight to your inbox every Sunday morning with actionable insights that you can put to work Monday morning. Also visit me at youtube.com forward slash to find videos. And you can also find my four-part video series, How to Plan a Sales Call at howtoplanasalescall.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. Thank you for being here. Do go leave me a review on iTunes and rate this podcast. Give me whatever number you think I deserve. And I look forward to seeing you next time in the arena. If you're a sales professional and if you want to bring your sales success to a new level, then join my friend, co-author of The Go-Giver, which sold 500,000 copies. Go-Givers sell more in the sales classic Endless Referrals, Bob Berg in Orlando, Florida for his next Go-Giver Sales Academy. This is a live event. So at this live event, you're going to get Bob and his business partner, Kathy, and they're going to work on helping you achieve greater success on your own terms. This is what I like about this program. Each workshop is limited to only 20 people. So you're going to get Bob and Kathy's individual attention You're going to get to strategize with them. You're going to get mentoring. And you're going to do this in a mastermind environment with really highly successful people who are going to learn with you and share with you so you can learn and grow together. You're going to learn about communicating value. You're going to learn how to spread that value and touch more lives. And you're going to have a greater impact. You're also going to discover your natural attributes and advantages and how to use those. And as one final note, I'll add here, I'm adding this note because i read the book. Bob's got a tremendous framework called Objection Proof, and you're going to learn how to deal with every objection, get to its root, and work through it together with your customer, something I call resolving concerns. You're also going to leave with a 90-day action plan. You're going to move forward with clarity, with focus, aligned with your purpose, and you're going to go out and you're going to do great work because that's what the GoGiver is all about. So if you want to join 20 people, when you join, there'll only be 19 spaces left. Go to thegogiver.com or email kathy at thegogiver.com and join Bob Berg and Kathy for the GoGiver Sales Academy. You'll find more information in the show notes and do reach out and let me know when you get registered and tell Bob that I sent you. I am Anthony Anarino and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you're going to be assaulted by a pop-up banner when you try to click on something or when you try to leave, and that's so that I can get your first name and your email address. I'm going to send you every Sunday morning content that you can use in your sales game or your business game or your success game. That's long form, actionable, something that you're going to be able to look at Monday morning and say, I've got ideas and I can get to work improving myself and my results. Also, go visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Do subscribe there where I'll send you video content. Me talking into the camera, sharing ideas with you or interviewing other people. Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time right here in the arena.